Hey everybody, Single Tree Podcast. Uh, we're here with episode thirty something, and uh, we're here with Daniel Warren. He's a uh, family medicine doctor and an addiction medicine doctor uh, who works at a clinic here in our town uh, with people who struggle with addiction, specifically who have been addicted to opioids. So we're thrilled to welcome him to the podcast today. Thank you. Welcome. Thanks. Yeah. Way to go being here. You rode your bike. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> it was a nice day. It was a nice day. Yeah. So good job riding your bike here. We might give you, you a ride home. I'd be okay with if that. If you're a good guest. <laughs> I'll try to, <laughs> I will do my best. Thanks for coming, man. Daniel's actually our friend first and now a colleague. For so. once, 20 years. Yeah. Whoa. That's crazy. Yeah. It's a long time. It's a long time. So good to see you <laughs> yeah, no, today. Right. <laughs> Thanks. Um, and so we would love to hear about addiction, how you work with people and help people mm-hmm. with their addictions. And, but it's, we know that it's something that you're passionate about. So just tell us, um, kind of maybe how you got involved or decided you would get involved in this kind of work and just what's so important to you about it. <laughs> um, yeah, so when I was in med school, I spent some time in an addiction medicine clinic, and um, it. So this was in my fourth year, and the fourth year of med school is just like a. It's not a blow it off year, but it's kind of like, you know, the first three years are pretty intense and grueling, and the fourth year is let's figure out where to go to residency and mm-hmm. take a little bit of time off and maybe spend some time on electives that aren't as strenuous. And so I did addiction medicine, knowing that it was kind of an outpatient thing, and maybe it wasn't going to be too crazy. And, and it was kind of interesting to me, the concepts. I was I did psychology as an undergrad, and, and it's always just been that kind of stuff I get interested in. And I went, and I was like, oh, this doesn't seem like work. Like They're just having conversations with people and trying to figure out uh, how do I help you move forward in life with this thing that's been really hard for you. Um, and then I did some more of that when I did my family medicine residency and, um, and then I worked as a family doctor for four years and, um, and didn't really do much in the way of addiction medicine during that time. And then I did a fellowship in Portland, Oregon, um, where all I did was do addiction for, you know, 40 or 50 hours a week. And, um, and it's just, it seems like what I get, I, I get passionate about a bunch of parts of it but it's just it's it's kind of like this is a part of medical science and just like society in general that i don't think is well understood and it's you know addiction has been with us for as long as there's been people and um i it's confusing to me that you know medical care comes in in the last 40 or 50 years and says that we've got an answer for this whereas the last like however many millennia like nobody's like there's not a good answer for it and now medicine says we got the answer um but it's fun to learn about and and hear people's stories and see what i can do to try to help with it um yeah great what do you think are the uh parts that are misunderstood about addiction i mean maybe maybe there's a lot maybe that's too big of a question but yeah i mean um you, you, I think I, maybe it's just because I was reading an article about cognitive biases yesterday, <laughs> but I'm like fundamental attribution error that, you know, when other people do things, it's because they're bad 
or it's because of their kind of internal personality driven factors. And when yeah. I do things, it's because of external, you know, issues that affect me. Um, so I, I think there's still a lot of stigma about addiction. Like it's just people making bad choices or it's just bad people making bad choices. Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. and that's especially with people that are pretty close to somebody that has substance use or behavior problems that are consistent with addiction. Um, you know, I think I think there's been some of a thaw of that in the last three or four years, just as like media representations have changed with the opiate epidemic, as you hear more stories about, oh, there's people just like me that have opiate addiction. Hmm. When it's interesting, like the vast majority of people that are affected are still people who are kind of like near or below poverty line and have had significant trauma in their childhood and you know, like things that don't necessarily characterize what the media representation looks like a lot. Um, yeah. But but we're learning kind of like appropriate language and how to talk about it without it being so judgmental yeah. all the time. So it's, it's important um, just when you're doing what you do mm-hmm. and, and even for other people um, to be able to be helpful and supportive, I guess, um, to think about how they view addiction. If you if you view addiction as you know um, all addicts are bad people just doing bad things who can't quit, um, then you know obviously in your position, if you were treating people and seeing them that way, then um, you would have a problem. <laughs> and yeah. you would treat them in a certain way. So yeah. um, if you can talk about ways to uh, conceptualize addiction, and it you know that that can be helpful um, because there needs to be a shift in how we think about it in order for us to be helpful. Yeah. Like if I think about it, like it's a um, criminality problem, then I'll recommend like a legal response. Right. And that's been the last hundred or so years in America is we, we act like using drugs as a criminal issue. And there, there are parts of substance use that go with criminality. Like if people steal in order to get money to buy drugs, that that's a criminal act. Or if people um, um, sell drugs, which frequently is to have money in order to use drugs, um, but you know the selling of drugs is a criminal act. The using of drugs is kind of like a when I when I talk to people, um, I try to like reinforce the idea of autonomy in those conversations mm-hmm. that. Um, the prevailing narrative is frequently drugs are drugs are bad and drugs are powerful. And if you use drugs, you're going to get hooked and bad things are going to happen to you. Whereas what most people experience is uh, I use drugs and it felt really good and I like it right. and it gives me energy and it helps me feel relaxed and I don't feel depressed anymore. And, and like, especially for adolescents, like I can talk to my friends and um, you know, I'm, I'm, there's like a social capital that's gained and we don't usually address that. Um, we talk about, even when people are actively using, we talk about all the reasons it's bad to actively use. We don't usually talk about like, what what does this do for you? Like, mm-hmm. Why is this a working solution? <clears throat> usually by the time people show up to see me, like it's not working anymore. Mm-hmm. Like they've run into like a hard and fast barrier in the way of like they go to jail or they lose their house or their family or their, their health. They have an overdose, et cetera. Right. Um, so I generally, I generally try to like reinforce the autonomy. Like you do this for a reason. It's not just like an irrational or 
or morally bad act. Like it's it's a rational act frequently. Sometimes it's not. Like there are people for whom the use of um, mind altering substance is because they already have like difficulty with their decision making. Um, but for a lot of people, like it's a rational act um, that that serves a purpose. Um, They're doing it for a reason. Yeah, and then I. So part of the job of treatment is to figure out why are you using. And sometimes that's difficult. It's really difficult to tease apart, like because over time, especially with opiates, if somebody uses because they were in pain, mm-hmm. well, opiates themselves over a long period of time can induce worse pain. And then if you use because you're in pain, you might not feel as much pain. And then if you have like an injury, then you might like if your foot is broken and you use opiates to deal with your broken foot, you might do stuff on your foot because you don't feel as much pain. And so you actually make the injury worse. And so like, there's just this really complicated interplay of like pain and the opiates and that, and that probably goes towards most substances is uh, over a long enough period of time. It becomes rather difficult to tease apart why I started using with um, whatever was going on in the first place. Um, right. Yeah. So the addiction then sort of, takes over yeah kind of and, yeah it's fair it becomes its own problem it becomes its own monster okay. um, and and generally when I see people at the point that they're ready to engage with some kind of treatment it's usually the case that um, you know I, I tried to stop because I realized either I didn't need it anymore and that's that's like a fairly common um, narrative is I started for a reason and then I realized I didn't need it anymore but I tried to stop and then I felt bad because people go like withdraw and they get sick or they have seizures or whatever, whether it's alcohol or benzodiazepines or opiates or whatever. Um, and, uh, and when I felt bad, I realized I couldn't stop and I had to keep using just in order to not feel bad. And, um, mm-hmm. so most of the time I see people and they're, they're not like using in order to get high anymore. It's mostly using, at, at the point where somebody's kind of like at a maintenance level of <clears throat> abuse, it's I'm using just so that I can avoid the negative consequences when I stop using, mm-hmm. which is kind of like a really terrible trap to fall into. And most people don't think about it. Like they, they start using and when it's like, start, yeah. you know, my friends are using or my family and, and they seem to be doing okay. And then I use and, and, and then I keep using and then they stop. And for some reason I can't stop. And then I'm just kind of like the one that's continues doing this. And it, it really kind of, creates separation for people um kind of like with alcohol like there's a lot of drinking that happens in people's early 20s and a lot of people stop drinking even if it's like heavy alcohol use even Mm -hmm. with complications Mm -hmm. a lot of people stop and then there's people that can't stop (laughs) and um uh and then when they try to stop they feel bad and yeah yeah it's not like you know going into it what yeah what your experience is going to be yeah we all Most people probably the the idea is that if I want to stop something, I I will be able yeah. to. And um, yeah, nobody nobody shows up to see me at the methadone clinic <clears throat> thinking this is exactly where I wanted to be in my life right now. Like, there's not a you know ten year old out there going, "What do I want to be when I grow up?" I want to go every day and take methadone at a methadone clinic. Um, which is not to say that it's like a bad thing. It's just it's I love working there. I love seeing people there. Mm-hmm. Um, it is rare that I see people who are like excited about, um, you Being know, this is where I cumulatively life. wound up. Right. Um, you know, it gets back to the, to me, it's like a, whatever your starting point is. If you consider that your starting point is 
kind of like all the things I missed out over the years and where I should be right now versus where I am right now. Like um, entering into substance use treatment is about looking into the mirror and recognizing where I am right now. And then I, no matter how hard I try, I'll never catch back up to where I think I should be. So you, part of the way you uh, try to view addiction and people who are struggling with addiction um, is to is to believe that they do have autonomy, mm-hmm. which means to me on the when you're when you're treating it or when you're trying to help them or they're trying to help themselves that they can get control of their lives and their use, mm-hmm. right? I mean, and it it would be, it would be a helpful stance to take if you were going to try to help someone regain like the power of self-control and be able yeah. to say no when they could say yes. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there's probably, there is a view of kind of like, so like the disease model of addiction would stipulate mm-hmm. that maybe autonomy is overridden over the course of like progressive addiction. Yeah. Um, and that people have no choice at some point with the way they behave. Right. Um, I have just like a hard time with that because I think it invites yeah. a lot of these um, kind of like scary big brother images of mm-hmm. and and, and um, things that aren't even like hypothetical. Like in Kansas, you can be so if you had a substance use problem and your family was concerned about you, they could petition a judge to have you forcibly engaged in substance use treatment, even though you've broken no laws. And if you if there's no access to substance use treatment, they could. Um, keep you um, in like a jail facility until access was found. And I don't think wow. those are things that happen commonly in Kansas, but there are other parts of the country, Massachusetts specifically, and there's some like other reasons this happens so much in Massachusetts, but where it's not uncommon for people to be petitioned into treatment and, and be kind of mandated to go even without hmm. having any kind of like legal infraction that's holding them to their heads. Um I, so that's where, when I, when I think about that, that's that's kind of like an autonomy discussion to me is if I believe that people yeah. um, are, are capable of making choices, and some people aren't. Like if I'm acutely, you know, um, having a schizophrenic break and I can't tell what's real from what's, you know, hallucinatory, it might not be a great time for me to make medical decisions. Okay, mm-hmm. that's fine. Or, right. or if I've got some other brain disease. Okay. Um, the people that I talk to who are using opiates or other substances, it's usually a rational choice. Like I'm doing this in order to X, Y, or Z. Like they're, they're very aware of the risks they take, the outcomes of um, their actions, what the alternatives are. And, and they can, they can say those things out loud. Like these mm-hmm. are rational operators. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not to say that they deserve blame because they're rational operators, but rather to say that there are multiple contributions um, and it's important to identify that like somebody can decide to do this and not have it be like a, and, 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 the, and take the judgment out of it. Yeah. Like that's what I, right. that's what I try to do when I talk to people. And I think it works fairly well because it gives them, cause like I, I can talk to people and, and not, and not bring in kind of the societal kind of attributions that come with Jud- using. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, and just saying that you have autonomy and, that you can make a choice, right, to have more power over this substance rather than it having power over you, if you want to say it that way, isn't saying that it's easy 
to make that decision mm-hmm. or that, you know, getting off of the drug is easy or that you don't need help yeah. or something like that, right? It's it's just saying like, but if you but if you say that people are, they don't have autonomy or just take the disease model, for instance, then uh, they become dependent on medical care um, and also don't really believe in themselves or yep. their or their mm-hmm. ability to yep. conquer addiction There's, it's about it's only about getting help yeah and i think the language i mean <clears throat> i think it's possible to conceive of addiction as a language based disease and that the, the language that we use generally strips people of autonomy on a regular basis hmm. um yeah, so we, we talk about it like it's this overpowering compulsion um you don't you don't have to have the idea of overriding compulsion in order to have addiction Um, and and that maybe the language that we use when we describe addiction as this overpowering thing is in itself one of the reasons that people continue to use Mm -hmm. because they've learned that this is an overpowering thing and if we use different language to describe it that that maybe people would um, be more prone to consider novel responses to this kind of like intractable situation like it's an overpowering thing that you can't stand yeah. up to. Yeah. If I told almost. you that yeah. about whatever and you were like, yeah, I got it. You're, I'm, you're an expert. You know better. It's like when I see people right. for pain and they, right. they say, yeah, the orthopedist told me 20 years ago, I'd always have to take medicine for my pain. And it's like, well, I mean, I would, I feel like that's kind of like a damning diagnosis. You know? It doesn't allow for any, anything novel. Yeah. And I think, I think behavior. there's, there's enough stories of spontaneous remission from um, addiction. There's enough stories of people engaging in 12 step recovery or medical treatment or psychosocial treatment. And, and obviously things change over time. Mm-hmm. And if, and if we believe this is, you know, hundred percent overpowering, like, um, that's a hard, that's hard to reconcile with, Hey, I'm going to do something, you know, as an outside agent, that's maybe going to help. The other thing that happens is mm-hmm. when people are confronted with, you know, the external locus of control, um, so this is why I have an issue with some of the, like the legal repercussions with addiction is, um, maybe, and I, having never, you know, um, had a substance use problem, it's hard for me to say like, this is exactly the mindset, but I know if I go long enough with a substance use issue that eventually I'll run into a wall that I can't get over and somebody will have to make me stop if I'm waiting. Cause I'll just, and I'll wait for it to be a legal thing that happens or my health, or there'll be some ultimatum that forces me to have to reflect on it as opposed to there's nothing that's going to stop me. And I think that's an important, like I, so, so I always tell people like, there's always a choice. You come into treatment today because the judge told you you had to, you didn't have to come in. You could have run, right? You could have gone to jail. You could have done anything. <clears throat> you came in because your wife wanted you to, you could have done, you, you didn't have to do that. Like there's always a choice. I always go back to the idea that there's a choice for you to be here today, even if you don't yeah. perceive it as that. It's the autonomy. I think it's so important because mm-hmm. um, what happens with substance use problems is over time autonomy is taken away, mm-hmm. right? So my my legal freedom is taken away, my health is taken away, and and I and I sacrifice all that in order to obtain the substance and use the substance. And then how can I give that back to somebody? I feel like if I'm not doing that as part of treatment, then people, it, it's I don't know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. So then how does that issue of autonomy square itself against just this process of shame that we've talked about earlier on in in addiction? Yeah. Um, yeah, That's an interesting question. You know, I think when we, when we talked about it earlier, the idea was 
that shame is like a key part of the the use cycle that that using propels the shame and the shame in order to cope with that propels the using um and then the way that i usually counsel people about it is you know you can you can stop the shame if you stop using but generally that's pretty hard for people um and that's usually what they try to do is and that's actually like to me part of the diagnostic criteria for having an addiction is i tried to stop but i couldn't stop and so then what do you do instead of trying to stop the behavior like how do i how do i remove shame as part of the cycle because if you remove either one of those things the other can't sustain itself so if we focus on the shame which is probably more approachable for a lot of people um and and so that's where willingness and kind of like autonomy show up is i can here are the things that i can do if i want to address the shame i can show up to the place i need to be whether that's a 12-step meeting or the you know facilitated group or the recovery whatever i can show up i can tell people what's going on in my life and i can ask for help Mm -hmm. and if i do those things then it kind of like brings about self-efficacy and kind of like the the idea that me acting autonomously is going to help and, and, and if I make that choice, maybe I can't not make the other choice, but if I keep making this one choice, that it becomes harder and harder and harder to make the choice that I don't want to. Yeah. Well, because shame is such a powerless experience and oh. so is a lack of autonomy. So then you're kind of taking a, an approach of just this empowerment of, of the individual and in, in the context of addiction then. I've heard enough stories of people feeling like they are totally incapable of doing anything that is helpful for themselves. And that to me is just a starting point. You know, like if I don't, I don't know, like I, if we don't address that and maybe somebody stops using drugs, it's like, well, kind of like what we said earlier, like what's the, <laughs> what's the point? Right. Yeah. <laughs> like how do you, how do you move forward um, with who you want to be if, all you're doing is trying to get away from something else. Mm-hmm. I don't think that is a, uh, it's just as that's hard to sustain. I don't know if it's possible to sustain. I sometimes I'll use the imagery of my patients of when, um, when people are trying to not use drugs, right? They're just, the effort is really, I'm going to, I'll ask what their goals are. And they're like, yeah, I just want to not use, I want to be sober. I'm like, oh yeah, that's, that's great. Um, it is hard to get away from something when all you're doing is walking backward while still staring at it. It's a good point. It takes up your, like it's still your entire field of vision. And if you're not walking or running towards something else, um, I think it's still right there, Hmm. you know, and it's just, and it's just waiting for you to trip over a log or something before. Um, yeah. That's a good analogy. I like that. I mean it, um, people seem to identify with it, but kind of like, um, that thing where people will nod and shake their head when the doctor says something and they never know if it's actually because it's like a good idea if they're like, you're just the guy that prescribes the medicine, so I need right. to laugh at all your bad jokes and take it really seriously. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah. And, and yes, you're doctor. the doctor, right? So people generally think doctors know what they're talking about. Uh, yeah, I guess. <laughs> I think maybe not. I'm okay with it not being that way. I generally yeah. think doctors know some things and then they pretend to know a lot of other things (laughs) and they extrapolate their experience in one area onto like the rest of life. Yeah. Um, with sometimes disastrous Mm -hmm. consequences. (laughs) Um, but yeah. So it might be a good shift to again, give autonomy back to the, the patient. Um, 
rather than carrying this um, belief forward that the doctor knows best yeah, and man. they just need to do what I the doctor's that. like. I hate I, that's like the worst outcome to me is if somebody goes to the doctor and the doctor's like, here's what you need to do to fix your life, and they do it. Like I, I because it's not my life. I don't. There, nobody needs an army of clones who are just willing to do whatever you say that they should do. Mm-hmm. And I, people come to see me for like 15 or 30 minutes and then they spend like 99.99% of the rest of their life not talking to me, mm-hmm. like actually living and doing other stuff. And I don't know what that right. looks like. I, it, yeah. it, it's, um, it, to me, it's the idea of advice. Like if I don't intimately understand somebody's universe, they have no reason that they should listen to me. Mm. And I'm, I'm like, okay That's with that. Point. So I generally... I try, there are times when like I have boundaries in the way that I'll practice medicine. I tell somebody like, listen, you have to do this or I'm not going to do something like that's my boundary. If you, if you act this way, I'm not going to do whatever. Um, but like, even then it's like, that's still a choice for them. Like they could be like, yeah, I don't care about that. I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm like, okay, that's, I I know what I'm going to do now, but I'm not going to force you. Like there's always a choice there. And I don't, it's, um, I, I'm so not interested in like codependence or rescuing that like I will be very clear with people about what my boundaries are and I'm like okay if they want to do anything else like it's not my life yeah like I said they're rational actors like you got to do what you got to do I'm I'm, I'm not gonna you know if somebody wants to get a flu shot great if they don't I'm not gonna chase them down in the hallway and like shake my finger at them or check back on them a month later and be like hey did you get your flu shot did you get your flu shot why didn't you get your flu shot (laughs) right it's not my life I don't need to be in charge of it. They, my job is like help people understand what I understand and then they get to make a choice about what's right for them. Yeah. It's great. It's good to hear, you know, just the changing that, um, that understanding of addiction, because we do think just even in our culture, in a broader perspective as, um, that addiction is, um, something that takes over someone's life. And once it has done that, um, it's overpowering and there's not a lot they can do or doesn't doesn't seem like there's a lot that they can do to help themselves. And so like working with people who are, um, very steeped in addiction, um, and, and do need help and trying to give them their power back. Even if you're only talking to them for 15 or 30 minutes when they come in for their appointment, um, you can hopefully make some shifts in their perspective. Yeah during that time and a lot of that is just like valuing somebody and respecting them and listening to them and reflecting just like I would in any conversation yeah um it's awesome and then and it's helpful too to like um because I I like the ideas in acceptance movement therapy go back to like these are the stories we tell ourselves and if somebody tells a story to themselves about addiction is overpowering for me and I always relapse like let's look at that story yeah and see is that a helpful story yeah as opposed to whether it's true or not, is it helpful? Does that story make sense in your life? And and then um, and then figure out if you need to move forward. Because people will take things for granted that are like hard and fast, 100% truth for years before it gets challenged. Or maybe it never gets challenged. Or even questioned, yeah. That's, that's the right. risk, I think. You know, you do any kind of like you know, helping profession, the risk is I'm going to tell somebody something and they're going to like hold on to that forever. And, um, and I would much rather ask yeah. somebody like, how is, what's helpful for you when you think about addiction, you know, 
Like, can you can you define it for yourself in a way that makes sense and is helpful as opposed to what everybody else has told you along the way? Because mm-hmm. for some people, it's really helpful to talk about it like it's a disease or an overpowering compulsion. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like in twelve step recovery, like it's frequently regarded that way. So people talk about the addict, um, like or my addict. So like my addict made me do this or like a part and, of me. And that's, and, and that can be like a really helpful way for people to describe it. That's great. For some people, it's not so helpful. That's, that's fine too. Like just mm-hmm. figure out what works. Um, and it doesn't have to be everybody engages with it the same way because like addiction is not monolithic between the types of people who have addiction and the types of addictions there are and the duration of addiction and how severe somebody's use history is and all that, like all that affects the way that somebody's brain kind of engages with kind of like their analysis of their behavior. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So success being, you know, the outcomes that we're looking for or what is helpful to them being giving them their power back Mm -hmm. and helping them feel empowered and having and believing in their own autonomy to be able to not be a slave to a a substance. Um, Let's talk a little bit about, the difference between recovery and treatment um, because uh, you made a delineation uh, between those earlier um, and I think it's a helpful one to think about I mean you are treating uh, patients when they come in for addiction but there's this whole other uh, sort of thing that's been help very helpful to a lot of people yeah. for a long time uh, which we call recovery uh, 12-step programs um, and it's a little bit different. I mean, you know, when people when people take responsible responsibility for their their own lives, you know, maybe that's when we start to um, kind of call it recovery. Mm-hmm. You know, because it's something that they they own. They're not being treated by the doctor or by the counselor, but I, taking ownership over. I think sometimes with recovery, what I conceptualize is like when. Um, I sit with somebody and talk with somebody and and there's that sense of serenity like 12 steps talks a lot about serenity and 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 equanimity and poise and and those types of things and it's like what is different about you like that's the that's the question sometimes people ask Hmm. Um, and when you know somebody before and after there's like a qualitative difference to who the human being is Um, I I think it's I wanted to I, I was thinking about this while you were talking I was listening and thinking at the same time <laughs> uh, nice. You're a doctor. You, you're a doctor. You can yeah, manage that. Right. <laughs> um, I was thinking about uh, there's some there's some evidence that when people have um, addiction and then engage in recovery and and have sustained recovery, that not only do they so so the the disease model of addiction would say that it's a disease and you treat the disease and people go back to normal, kind of like an infection, like so. If you get a mm-hmm. bloodstream infection, we give antibiotics, and your body goes back to normal. The okay. end. Um, and and sometimes people have that idea with addiction. We treat addiction, and then you go back to the way you were. And what the evidence shows is that when people engage in long-term recovery, that they don't just go back to the way they were. That they go back, and and then go further as a person who can live according to their values mm-hmm. than they did beforehand. That to me is a message of hope that I give my patients as regularly as I can. Like, it's not just about, I'm, I'm going to be me, except I'm not going to use a substance anymore. Right. I'm going to be me. I'm just not going to do that one thing. That's, that's like a, that's awful. That seems like torture. 
the reason you did that in the first place is because it sucked to be you probably. <laughs> or it was really hard or right. I was really scared all the time or I couldn't sleep and I was I was anxious and you know there there were a lot of things that were going on that made life difficult. I don't want you to go back to just being you without the substance because that's like torture. You did that for a reason and now you don't have that anymore to cope. Mm. Sounds impossible. That and it just and it, even if it were possible, that would be misery. I wouldn't wish that on somebody. Right. What I know is that when people engage in long-term recovery, it's it's not just you go back to the way you were. You just don't have a substance anymore. It's um, I get to live a life that is now even more consistent with my values, and that is a that is magic. Mm-hmm. So so sobriety and treatment to me is about I'm not going to use anymore. And we have ways of assessing that, right? So we do drug screens, and we, you know, uh, uh, people talk about them, you know, themselves in terms of their substance use or whatever. Recovery is about what does my life look like. So if you look at the twelve steps as a as a one model of recovery, the first and the last step are the only ones that really mention the substance or the behavior. Okay. You know, steps two through eleven. You know, they talk about what somebody's higher power is. So in spiritual mm-hmm. context, they talk about an inventory of their life. So how is you know the stuff that I've done affected this? They talk about their character defects, like who I am. And my personality issues that have contributed, or maybe like personality assets that have contributed in, in positive ways. And then it's making amends, and then it's spiritual practice. And then the first step is here's all this crazy stuff I did and in my substance use history or my behavior history. And the last step is here's what I'm gonna do to try to give it back to other people because I can't keep it unless I give it away. Um, mm-hmm. So that I think that's an important way to think about it. Recovery is about all the other stuff. It's not just about, I'm going to stop using. It's about, I'm going to start living. Their their personal stuff their, and their spirituality and what they believe in and what they and their values and, and things like that. And yep. Their relationships, too. Yep. I mean, all of that is quintessential. There's there's a way to think about addiction as like a, um, as a, a, a disease of connectedness. Huh. So, um, yeah. There's a TED Talk that I like a lot by a guy named Johan Kari, I think. Mm-hmm. This is a British guy that talks about how disease is maybe the opposite of connection, or addiction is the opposite of connection. Mm-hmm. Um, and that if I engage in healthy, stable connections with myself and with my valued activities and with my relationships and my spiritual practice, that that when I build a life that's big enough, I, I think there's always a part of people's brains that's going to be connected to the substance or the behavior yeah. that will always be be there and it and i don't know if you make it smaller over time or what i don't but like let's say that part's always there the idea is to build out a a huge kind of like protective guard a bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger life so that 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 part that is addiction looks tiny in comparison and when i reflect on it i think i could do that and it would just take so much time and energy and effort and be contrary to my values. And I, and I can play through the consequences and it just doesn't make any sense. Mm. And that's, um, you know, they talk about the 12 steps when the compulsion is lifted and it's like, that's, I think that's what it looks like is I've built out enough of a life that the compulsion doesn't make sense. I know I can't follow through on it. And even if I did follow through on it, it would be ruinous and, I, and it's not interesting to me anymore. No longer just makes be- sense. Yeah, becomes recontextualized that yeah. the compulsion and, or the and, and I and I and I think about addiction sometimes like it's a disease in the sense of like tuberculosis. If I got tuberculosis in my lung, this is the first time I made this analogy, so forgive me if it doesn't play through. <laughs> Always risky, and it's recorded. <laughs> um, 
If I've got tuberculosis in my lung, my body walls it off. It doesn't actually kill the tuberculosis. It walls it off and it becomes latent. And it just sits there, waiting, waiting, waiting. Mm -hmm. And then when my immune system becomes compromised, either because of age or because of medicines that I take or diseases that I have, then the tuberculosis might reactivate later in life. And I, and I wonder that about addiction. Yeah. You know, I, I engaged in this behavior in my 20s. Sure. I stopped for a long time. And I lost the connections in my life that were helping me keep this area walled off. Mm. And now it has a chance to grow again. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's one of the reasons I strongly encourage my patients to engage in some sort of weekly connection to, to recovery, like a 12-step right. meeting or celebrate recovery or, or um, smart recovery. Um, there's a Buddhist kind of model called refuge recovery, like just something uh-huh. in meetings where I can, even if I don't tell my own story, I can hear other people's stories and be reminded, have the mirror held up to me so I can look at it and go, hey, um, this, I, I, I forgot for a while, but now I remember what it was like. And I know that if I, if I don't continue on this road, that, mm-hmm. that it's not too far for me to fall down and, and do that again. Because yeah. um, I, I don't think you get to... I don't think it ever just goes away. Hmm. Yeah. Similar to, I mean, you know, not doing the things that promote cancer growth or, you know, we all have the potential to develop cancer, right? But um, maybe there are certain agents or certain behaviors or certain things that we encounter in our environment that actually just promote that, Mm -hmm. the growth of it. And uh, if we can, if you can build a life that sort of doesn't, doesn't promote the compulsive behavior but rather like even just sort of diminishes its its role and its function yeah. and its and it, especially its power then you that's know, recovery it might spark but it never catches fire it's a very organic process or approach oh, to, yeah. to all of this I mean, as I... opposed to just elimination of behavior and you know a very linear and rigid kind of approach to this i mean even if that's what i thought like that's not what my patients want you know they're not some people will say yeah i just want to get sober i want to stop using but it's usually they show up because it's like my life is ruined like i need to be able to work again and i want to be able to see my kids and you know i don't i don't enjoy the way things are it's not like it's just reductionist to think if i can just help somebody stop using that all of a sudden it's going to get better right and that's the mindset some people have so some doctors have the mindset of um you know i'll prescribe medicine to help you with your addiction and the medicine will do the job like people are born with an opiate deficiency you know and and that's that's not just with you know addiction treatment that's like you know you can't sleep you have an ambient deficiency you've got you know anxiety of a xanax deficiency you you um have diabetes you have an insulin deficiency and and for people with like type 1 diabetes that's how it works but like like there's life that contextualizes all of that and it's to to reduce it to just this biological frame is insulting to life even the biopsychosocial frame that is you know promulgated in medical school education like you you divorce the spiritual component of that um and and like that is a um, that feels like a, a a game that is unwinnable sometimes. Like when I did family medicine, if I I felt like sometimes I didn't have like a spiritual lens on what was going on, like that meaning mm-hmm. sense. Mm-hmm. 
um, you can you can treat people exactly right and miss the forest for the trees. Sure. You know. Yeah. It's just a. That's, I don't like. I don't like feeling that way. Uh, it's not consistent, compatible with my view of how life works. So the recovery in the twelve step model is helpful, partly because it brings in spirituality, which you know part of spirituality is just um, finding a me- finding meaning, mm-hmm. right? Um, finding a life that's full rather than just quitting yes. the substance, yep. right? Um, you know, and that's where um, the higher higher power in AA, you know, what is what is your compass, you know, or, or your values, um, and the meaning that you have that can, that can guide you toward fulfilling your own values and just what you, even just what you want in your life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, sometimes I'll describe the higher power as, you know, the thing that I'm unwilling to lose to addiction, you know? So I, that's nice. Yeah. Um, sometimes it'll, I describe it as like, um, the thing that's more powerful than the addiction mm. and that means a lot of different things a lot of that's fine like for some people it's nature or the ocean or um the group conscience and a 12-step meeting or you know the spirit of the world or jesus or buddha or you know whatever um, could be their relationships yeah and you can have a higher power that's not like specifically like i, I you can practice as like a um, believer in a given faith and not have your higher power be that it's 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 that there's usually time to reconcile that stuff you just got to find the thing that is like this is more important than the addiction this is the thing that i won't sacrifice for the addiction Mm -hmm. and whatever the answer is for that or the thing that's more powerful whatever the answer is like go with that like hold on to that um explore that because that's where meaning and yeah I, i just i I get like excited when I talk about that sometimes because I'm like, this is the fire that burns in everybody. Sure. Yeah. yeah. You know, that fire is unquenchable and sometimes it's hard to find, but it's always there. Yeah. You know, do you find that it's hard to help people discover that or like to be led by it? Because, you know, I imagine, and this is true, I think for, for a lot of people and not, and not just in addictions, but it seems like, the addiction is so powerful or even their um depression or their their stress is so powerful do you do you find that it's difficult to help people connect with that i think i um (laughs) this is gonna (laughs) i'm gonna give you a real bad answer um so i I wrote this essay when i was in college about the differences between the um worlds that were created by J.R.R. tolkien and c.s lewis Right, so you got Narnia and you got Middle Earth, and Narnia is like really overtly spiritual mm-hmm. in nature, and it's got like allegorical symbolic figures, right? Mm-hmm. So Aslan is like Jesus, and etc. J.R.R. Tolkien, like it's infused with spirituality, but like there's nothing that's allegorical about Middle Earth. Like there's no Jesus figure, there's no um, you know God that's kind of like waiting in the wings. Um, and I, and I think about that when I do treatment sometimes in the way that I engage with people like I don't I don't overtly you know lead people in, in regard to like spiritual practice and, and in some ways that would feel weird for me like I have a hard time with that like even in my own life like having like overtly spiritual conversations mm-hmm. um, rather I think what is 
this is maybe like an excuse, the way that I try to have the conversation and, and be able to reflect on meaning and spirituality is by um, living in the moment with somebody and being myself with somebody and, and having that be an okay thing and having kind of like the spirit connect between two people uh-huh. and not naming it, mm-hmm. but, but allowing myself to give mm-hmm. myself to somebody else right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then I, I think maybe what happens is people then have a chance to reflect on that and, and maybe identify that there was something different about it. But mm-hmm. it's not, I don't know how much of a cognitive thing that is. Yeah, like you sparks know? something deeper yeah. and hopefully... Yeah, it becomes okay. It becomes a little bit... I, I think about the people that um, have cared the most for me in my life or made the most difference. And it wasn't people who I look at and say, I want to be more like you. It's people that looked at me and helped me be more of who I am. You know, I'm, I'm, okay, I'm, I'm okay being me. You know, they, they encouraged that, you know, and I want to be able to provide that when I sit down with somebody. Um, and it's like, okay to be you, you know? And I think when, then you can kind of lift off the layers of judgment and shame a little bit and start to look inside and see what's really there. Hmm. It's like a spirituality of presence and also of acceptance Mm -hmm. and then love. I mean, I wouldn't probably say it like that, but I'll let you say it. I just just did it. It feels feels okay. (laughs) You don't have to say it like that. Uh, So that sounds like you had to, I mean, that sounds like a tough paper to write. The one about Tolkien and Lewis. It was. It was really hard. I had a lot. Why did you do that to yourself? um, I tried to write it in high school and got a really bad grade. (laughs) You had to redeem yourself. I was like, "There's, there's some truth here, though. There's something important." (laughs) Wasn't ready to let go, were you? Golly, but it was like a lot of reading and a lot of writing and a lot of revision, and um, and there were people that helped me quite a bit, which was appreciated. Like I didn't plagiarize or anything, but there were people that edited and and helped me out with it. made a big difference you're gonna end up with a phd dissertation about that that's never gonna happen yeah and i'm totally fine with that (laughs) i'm gonna make sure it happens i just wrote a review article like i'm in the process of writing a review article right now and it's like it's um i wrote half of it and then a few other people wrote other parts of it and it's just like it's like ten thousand words and it's like rigorously sourced and like i had to like create tables and figures and stuff and i'm like people do this for a living this is awful I don't want to do this. That's not a normal part of your job. I learned a lot from doing it. No. Well, so kind of, but I'm going to take a break from it for a little bit. Yeah. And I'm going to be okay with that. No more tables and charts. (laughs) No. Yeah. Anyway. You seem like more of a people person. Um, It's, that's definitely easier work for me in a lot of ways. It's really, I mean, doing the research is helpful because it gives me a sense of like, who's studying what out there and, and some of the stuff about mm-hmm. addiction and how people view it. I probably wouldn't have like identified those kind of like philosophical, um, uh, building blocks without having to do like some rigorous examination of the literature. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's good in a lot of ways, but like, man, it's, it's just, it's a, a lot of work. It's deep brain work and I want to stay out of there sometimes. You do. Yeah. It's scary down there. (laughs) Endless. It's hard to get out. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's funny. All right. So I'll, uh, I'll shoot some practical questions your way or at least one. Okay. Um, so 
the opioid epidemic is yep. all over the place yep, right sure. now yep. in the media mm-hmm. and everybody knows that it's happening yep um and people are asking you about it i'm sure this happens and uh so like but on a but we don't really we're not looking for like uh a public um you know announcement about like Mm -hmm. what should we do about the opioid epidemic or what would you say to someone like personally if they were struggling with um, being addicted to any substance or just had someone that they loved who was like what what is you know no not what's the big answer to the opioid epidemic what's a personal answer yeah or a place to start anyway yeah um like, so if I'm talking to a family member of the conversation, and I haven't had tons of these conversations because I see I see patients that struggle with addiction. I don't see family members frequently, but right. um, I would say the conversation starts with with them. Like, it's not it's not about your loved one's substance use or be, behavioral addiction. Like, it has you have to start with you and figure out what your contribution has been to this system, and then. Um, work on your own resentments and figure out what you can control um, because ideally like I want to live in a world so I think about Viktor Frankl who hmm. you know lived through the Holocaust in a concentration camp and lost I think everybody in his life that was important to him and yet through that developed logotherapy like the idea of like meaning based therapy and that's a and it and so he had these like awful circumstances and yet was able to create something beautiful and identify that like even in this is like a this is gonna be a butchered quote, but the I think it's Camus who said, even in the midst of darkest winter, I find within me there's like an invincible summer. Right? I think yeah. that is an important that's that's how I reflect on um I don't know. I got too excited on that quote. Now I totally forgot what I was going to say. What was I saying? Good one. It was. It's a good quote, right? That's probably all that I needed. Well, you to were say. talking about family members finding oh, their yeah. contribution. Yeah, yeah. So the like, even though it's hard to have family members that have substance use or behavioral problems, like, um, I want to believe that like I can have serenity in any circumstance, and that. And, and then because of that, I get to be with somebody without it involving judgment or them having to change. I get to offer the thing that I've offered to myself and other people have offered to me, which is that I'm, I'm lovable as I am. That doesn't mean I have to give somebody money or, or they live at my house or whatever. Like, okay, I have boundaries about those things, but that doesn't change the basic way that I see it, this person in my life. Um, generally, when somebody is using... Or, or acting out with behavioral addiction. Um, and I've just had this conversation recently with friends. Um, sometimes the response is, man, this, as a family member or a loved one, like this hurts really bad. Um, and I don't, I, but yeah, it hurts. And I don't take that away. And then I think about it, and I'm like, imagine how bad the person that's doing this must feel to knowingly continue with this behavior. Imagine how hurt they must feel in order to do this like that's that's the conversation i want people to start moving towards in their head and it's not a way to excuse people or to take away from the way that a loved one feels but rather to say like um when people act that way 
it is there's a huge and sometimes buried amount of shame and guilt and self-hatred and other things that are still alive inside you know um so that's if if i talk to a family member that's one of the messages that sometimes i'll give and it depends like if somebody's sometimes people are ready to hear that um and i think about in my own life the people that i've loved that have had problems like that and um, i think until i was willing to see them as people that were trying their best Mm -hmm. it was just it was really hard to offer any forgiveness or to be helpful maybe and people disagree with me about that like i'll talk to people that i really care and love and they'll say yeah i don't think that was that person trying their best and that's and i'm okay with that like i don't have to control that that's what it took for me is to say hey you know this person maybe they had a hard time figuring out what to do they did what they thought was best and it didn't and it didn't work and it continued to not work yeah that's a really hard thing to come to is is these people, you know, that, that people are trying their best, you know what I mean, in whatever circumstance, but especially in, in addiction, because, you know, even when people are knowingly making the decision that they know is not healthy, they're still in a context mm-hmm. trying their best, which is not, it's just not an easy place to come to. No, especially when your trust has been broken over and over mm-hmm. and over and over. Yeah, when you've yeah. been hurt. Yeah, and I, and I don't, Again, I don't, I don't disagree with that. It's just I think when people are able to move forward after being affected by something like that, like I think that's the mindset that um, I can say this. That's the mindset that's helped me move towards forgiveness and reconciliation. Um, and and I think I think that's pretty consistent with my own like spiritual beliefs and practice. Yeah. I think people, most people. Maybe all people, but I'm not totally sure. Most people are trying their best, and they have a set of tools, and sometimes it works, and then it stops working. Right. And I think, you know, like being able to forgive and and reconcile with that person as much as it's up to you, um, it seems like that would be the place where they can then be helpful mm-hmm. to that. If it, if they're if you're talking about doing yeah. that with someone who you care about who is addicted yeah. that that's the place where you can be helpful I think that's a side effect of it okay I think sometimes people forgive and think that's the way that I'm going to help somebody okay. and that therefore things will change and it's like that's no it's you do it because it's the right thing for you to do at any given time I'm not saying for it's you. the right thing yeah. to do but if, if I were to do that it's like well I feel like this is the right thing to do and I'm going to do that and it doesn't it's not about how somebody receives it or whether they change like sometimes it's nice when now things are better but like if I walk into that with the expectation that this is the primary outcome of why I'm doing this it's like that's a it's just that reinforces the whole thing in the first place that reinforces the conditionality of the love that I provide somebody yeah it's not as authentic yeah and I just don't just don't do it like just leave it alone if you don't if you don't want to forgive somebody don't forgive them if you don't want to forgive somebody don't forgive them conditionally yeah with the pretense that it's going to somehow make them act different. Like that yeah. would be, and it's not really coming from your heart. No, I, I get it. With people, again, I get it when people do that. I'm not, I don't want to be in charge of how other people act. It's just like, I don't, um, that would be a hard way to do things and probably just reinforce 
the whole cycle again. Thanks for what you're doing, man. Oh, yeah, sure. And your perspective. You have to come to... again. Oh, well. Keep fighting the good fight. You put me on the smelly couch again, we'll see. <laughs> 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 no, I like it. I like talking about it because it kind of connects me back to why I do what I do. And, and that's like a way to get... It's easy to get lost. Rooted in my values and when you're doing it. Yeah, yeah. There's drift that and, happens and that's yeah. fine. And then... But doing this kind of like it's just like anything else it holds up the mirror and allows me to see what's real and what's not and and i get to feel kind of like through the conversation of what i believe and what i don't well you'll have to come back and we'll wake you up again to yeah right. really nice <laughs> just don't be surprised <laughs> next time you're next welcome time i may you're say welcome. totally different things and believe that's totally fine things, things change there's room for that as long as this is helpful for you Exactly. <laughs> uh, I am on the couch now, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, no, right. I think it'll be helpful for a lot of people to hear your perspective because it's something that you've been, that you've read and studied and practiced mm-hmm. a lot. Mm-hmm. And, um, and a lot of people wouldn't have said that a lot of these things that you talked about today were even connected with addiction or they, or they just don't think about the depth of it um or they don't you know yeah well the disclaimer i probably should have said right up front is like this is the way that i see things and if it's helpful for people that's great and if it's not helpful then just i mean just forget about it like it's that's a good um you want me to put that part at the beginning (laughs) right (laughs) this is just it is literally the way that i see it and and some of it has scientific background and some of it is just the you know practical experience and i'm okay with if if people listen and it's like hey that's not that doesn't help me move forward with what's important to me or I disagree with it. That's okay with me. Then like, I don't use it. Yeah. And I'm not here to convince anybody. It's just like a way to say, this is what seems like it has worked, you know, in awesome. the way that I do things. Cool. Thanks yeah. for being here, friend. Sure, Thank man. you. Thank you, guys.